0: Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn.
1: And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best homebrewers and get them to share their tips, tricks, and secrets with you. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas.
0: And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with ways to check it out.
1: Well, and on today's episode, we're going to go through the slush pile again because we got more feedback. But first, we're also going to tell you exactly what the heck is coming up uh, here in shorter, uh, including some of our stuff about charity because we're going to need your help. Uh, then we're heading to the pub where we got a whole plethora of beer stories because, well, the beer industry just keeps moving and moving. Then we're going to go into the library, talk a little bit about hops and a really great find that we came across from the MBAA, uh, talk a little bit about tasting some malt in the brewery and in the lounge. Well, Denny, what are we doing in the lounge?
0: <laughs> Multiple interviews today.
1: And then we'll answer your questions, hit you with a quick tip, and drop a little something on you other than beer before we get you on with your day. This episode is brought to you by Peaker Brew. Makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry.
0: Choose Craftmeister. And by... The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that will take too long to list here head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership.
1: And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast.
0: back and we're ready to tell you what's going on first thing we want to mention is that there's a new brew files episode out drew talked to chop and brew video master and brewer extraordinaire chip walton about his uh brew in a bag habit and it was actually pretty darn interesting
1: go figure <laughs> that's almost like i know what i'm doing when i'm making a podcast buddy
0: almost almost yeah you're, you're getting there chip talks about his uh his evolution from extract brewer to going all grain with brew in a bag and has some uh, some great tips for all of you who are already brewing in a bag or thinking about going that way. So be sure to check out Brew Files episode 11.
1: And then, of course, well, by the time you're hearing this episode, we will be exactly one week away from Homebrew Con 2017. Wrath of Ooh. the Con, the sequel. Right. And so, we, you know, obviously we are going to be busy while we're doing uh, the con, but there will be many places where you can stop by and see us and wave and say hi, or maybe just uh, poke us in the eye. Starting with on the Wednesday before the conference actually starts on June 14th, we will be at the chop and brew party between chop and brew and brew philosophy and us kind of going, Hi doing some uh, fun trivia at about 6 o'clock in the evening. And, of course, the party itself will have lots of other shenanigans happening at Insight Brewing uh, there in Minneapolis. Make sure you go to chopandbrew.com to be able to find out how you can buy tickets. I know they're almost out of tickets, so you best get your game on in a hurry. And then on the 15th, you're going to be able to watch Denny, myself, Marshall Shot, and Malcolm Frazier of brewlosophy.com. In a panel discussion, walking through the whole beer science-y thing that we do and what we want you to do with it called Hold My Beer and Watch Me Science.
0: (laughs) And that's like at uh, 2.30 in the afternoon, is that correct?
1: That seems about right. Look in your program. It'll be there. Or actually, better yet, download the AHA HomebrewCon app to your phone. Keep track. Hey,
0: what a great idea. What a great idea. And uh, I'll just put out a warning right now. There will be ukulele involved.
1: There's always ukulele involved. On the 16th. There will be no ukulele involved in the morning, as I am actually doing a panel with other Radagast award-winning clubs called Building a Great Homebrew Club, where you can actually go ahead and find out, you know, just really what the Carolina Brewmeisters, the Maltos Falcons, and the Hogtown Brewers of Gainesville, Florida do in order to make sure that their clubs are running smoothly and doing some very awesome things. And then on the expo floor... There'll be a meet and greet at the Craftmeister booth. Uh, Denny, at what time are
0: we doing the Craftmeister booth? We will be at the Craftmeister booth at noon on uh, the 16th.
1: And then, immediately following that, we're going to be at the Brewer's Publications booth doing a signing. So if you have something that you want us to sign, maybe a book, maybe an arm, maybe a beer glass. uh, Yeah, we'll leave it there. Come find (laughs) us at the Brewer's Publications uh, site, and we will be armed and ready with Sharpies. So uh, come find us at one thirty to be able to get your stuff signed at Brewers Publications on the expo floor. And then, as if that wasn't enough... Because we're never done. Immediately following the book signing, we will be making an appearance at the Brewcraft USA booth doing a live podcast. And if you listened to our live podcast last year, you know it's a lot of fun. We'll be having a lot of different guests on, and we may even break into some scientific results while we're there on the floor.
0: We just may, and we definitely want to hear questions from you guys. So uh, come by between 2.30 and 4.30. We're recording. Bring a question for us. See if you can stump the chumps.
1: There you go. And then finally, on the 17th, Denny gets to rest. No, actually, he gets to introduce a bunch of people.
0: I'm introducing three seminars that day.
1: So on the 17th, though, we'll be hanging out. We'll be having fun. There's a forum meetup in the Expo Center during the conference. Uh, There will be an award ceremony, obviously, and then there'll be a big party afterwards. You'll be able to find us there uh, hanging out before Denny goes to retire because he's got to catch an early flight.
0: That's right. So uh, we'll be all over the place. Catch us somewhere. Come by. Say hi. Uh, We want to meet you. We want to talk to you about your homebrew. So uh, see you there at Homebrew. Watch our
1: social media feeds because we'll be lighting it up, telling you exactly where we're at. So you can come find us and, and harass us. And by the way, if you just see us walking about, feel free. Stop us. We're friendly mostly yeah after i've had my coffee and then finally denny i think it's a uh, charity time still
0: yeah it is uh we have a number of ways that you can support the podcast but one of the coolest things you can do is go to our website at experimentalbrew.com and click on the patreon link to support our charity of choice and right now through the end of june we're raising money for the san gabriel valley humane society Because, I mean, who can not like animals, you know?
1: Well, just and and particularly, we're raising money for the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society in memory of my beloved Cookie, who I'm having real trouble actually fathoming it's been six months since I lost her.
0: So remember, you have until June to get in on that. So uh, help us by pledging some money to the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. And then you can help us again by picking out the new charity that we're going to be starting on the beginning of July, right? Yeah, we
1: need we need some uh, good charitable suggestions. Remember, so far we've supported Friesen Service Dogs of America, the Children's Tumor Foundation, and now the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. So what's next? Let us know. We like good ideas, but remember, our general, our general approach on the charity is that we would like to have something that has, well, you know, a broad scope, something that we can all uh, support. But the organization itself is still relatively small enough that the donations that we're going to be giving are actually going to be worthwhile. So, you know, keep that in mind as you're making suggestions. And look, we don't mind if you have a personal connection to the charity either. Children's Tumor Foundation, there was a personal connection there. And obviously, as I just talked about, San Gabriel Valley, there's a very personal connection there. So
0: let us know. We guarantee you that uh, Denny and Drew's Sandwich Fund is not one of the charities. Yes,
1: but we're not guaranteeing the Belgium Fund isn't. All right. (laughs) Don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in iTunes. Click on the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website to support us without costing you a dime and getting some pretty cool stuff in the meanwhile. And then, yeah, as we just said, don't forget, there's always Patreon. Throw us a buck or two. The dogs could use the help.
0: So please help us, help us, help us.
1: Yes, Denny uh, Denny needs lots of help. All right. So why don't we go ahead and move on to the uh, feedback slush pile. We've got two uh, pieces of feedback to cover today. Uh, Denny, you want to read the first one?
0: This is from Kevin McAvoy via email, and he's asking about our biotransformation experiment that uh, has been going on. Hi, Denny and Drew. Oh, well, it really says Drew and Denny, but I'm going first. Thanks for the podcast. I look forward to it every week. Just getting into the current installment and heard your introduction for the new experiment you'll be conducting about dry hopping and potential biotransformation. A question arose in my mind when you laid out the procedure. Will the time difference between when you dry hop the first beer to the second not introduce another variable into the mix? I realize you're doing it this way for simplicity's sake and to keep each beer on the dry hops for an equal amount of time, but in doing so, the beer dry hopped at high croisin will have several days in which its hop aroma and flavor can potentially start deteriorating. When the taste tests happen, any difference in aroma and flavor will not be definitively attributable to the difference in hopping technique or the amount of time passed since the dry hopping took place. Am I thinking about this wrong? Anyway, thanks for all your efforts. Keep up the groovy work. Kevin. Kevin, I just want to thank you for using the word groovy there. You know, in a technical way, it'll make a difference. In a practical, pragmatic way, it's not going to make a difference,
1: is it? Yeah, I mean, we debated about how exactly I set this up because, I mean, remember, this was inspired very much by an experiment that Marshall did. And Marshall did a very careful setup where he brewed two batches effectively back-to-back apart to sort of give them the same amount of aging time on the hops and pull them out into the kegs at the same time. And that's absolutely a brilliant design, but, of course, a little bit more complicated than I think that we could reasonably ex- execute with the Igors. And, you know, also at the same time, but when we're talking about the way that these beers are going to be executed in reality – this sort of time difference that you're going to see built into this experiment is going to be what's there anyway. So when we do this, I think you'll have sort of a more real world approach to this. And this is always the debate you know, that we get into about exactly how to design this stuff. And we tend to go for, as Denny would say, the pragmatic side of it. So that's why we designed it this particular way, because I think it's easier to execute. And it will also give, uh, in my mind, a slightly more real world picture of the end result.
0: Yeah, um, and, and that's that's really what we're going after in pretty much all of our experiments. We want to look at, you know, the, the real-world homebrewer version. We are not trying to present you with the uh, science that is done to the nth degree. We're trying to just present you with a situation and the way that it went and let you draw your own conclusions from it. And, uh that's that's really my goal in everything that we do, which uh, kind of leads into our next letter, huh? Yeah.
1: And so our next letter actually came in a, in the form of a Reddit comment from uh, Sachin, who goes by the the name Chino Brews on Reddit, and this is about the Brutan episode. And we talked a little bit about this, but I figured you know he had a uh, a very strong reaction. I figured we might as well address it. So, Drew, hey, this is Jermaine to episode thirty nine, the Brutan B result. And yes, I understand that aired a month ago. I meant to write back when episode 39 aired, but I was too frustrated and disgusted by the lack of any scientific objectivity to do it. And I'm only now returning to the podcast. I appreciate the fact that you and Denny read one solid critical comment on air. Well, now two. However, I don't think you still recognize how non-objectively you two are presenting yourselves, nor have you corrected that bias. It says here, uh, besides the rightful comment that you read to the effect that you two initially presented non-significant results, null hypothesis was not rejected he's right. The initial episode had a non-significant result. And then discuss your subjective impressions of the product. The other elephant in the room is the fact that you had invited the principal seller of the product to interpret the experimental results. This is akin to inviting the CEO of RJ Reynolds to review the scientific results of a smoking experiment on a program, with the two hosts being both smokers and cheerleaders of cigarettes. Chino. Uh, Chino went on for uh, a while, but that's really the kind of the heart of the comment. And... I know Denny said uh, uh, what Denny had to say, but I mean, here's the thing when we talked about it before, look, yes, this was a trenchant point about particularly how we did that particular set of analysis and we've gone sort of back and forth about it. And I think, you know, really we've taken our lumps from it. Now, Denny is obviously a big believer in the product. I'm sort of neutral on it. So that's me. But Chino has a fair point and he went on to talk about, you know, sort of how some of this can affect, you know, people's perception of our objectivity. And I totally agree. And like I said, I think what we've done is we've taken our lumps from sort of that reaction to it and are walking back through exactly how we do these results so that when we present you guys information that we are trying to remove as much of our bias as we can. Now, I mean, inherently, there's still going to be some bias because we're humans. So it's a fair point. We hope that we uh, have addressed the fact that, yes, we agree it was not the most uh, perfect execution of the experiment that we could. We are actually in the process of revisiting some of that in order to be able to try and uh, filter that out and give some more better results. So stay tuned, and hopefully you guys will be pleased with what we do.
0: Yeah, right. I you know, and I can't uh, I can't disagree with any of his uh, comments about uh, about how the experiment was conducted and the interpretation of the results. Uh, I can disagree with some of his uh, analysis of our motives, but that's neither here nor there at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh but just remember we presented the results and then my comments were my comments and uh, not not intended to try and uh, Nullify or negate any of the uh, the numerical results that uh, we presented. No, so.
1: but it is a fair point. That, I mean, one of the things that we do have to, I, I think, one of the things that we realized out of this particular escapade was, for lack of a better way of thinking about it, even though we don't think of ourselves as voices of authority, we are the people with the microphones, and so I think we do have to be uh, uh, far more clear about what uh, when it's personal opinion versus you know voice of authority type stuff. Yeah. That then again, I
0: will agree with. Absolutely. Yep.
1: So there you go. And uh, Chino, we will see you in two weeks in, or actually by the time this airs, we will see you in a week at HomebrewCon. We promise no knife fighting.
0: <laughs> yeah, really.
1: I think it's time for a beer.
0: Uh, just what I was going to say, too. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, head over to the pub, and we'll be right back. Yeast is collaborating with homebrew icons and top-rated hobby podcasters Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham to bring you the Yeast Private Collection strains for 2017. Our second quarter features a great variety of strains for saisons and related styles as we shift into spring and the warmer weather ahead. With their rustic and refreshing profiles and versatile pairings, there's no better way to welcome the new season. Try something funky with our Cezanne Brett blend, go classic Belgian with beer to guard, or discover Forbidden Fruits' unique flavors in a Whip Beer. Welcome back. We are here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, USA. We're drinking a couple beers. What you drinking there, Drew? Uh,
1: Well, I'm having, in light of last time I messed up some wording, and also in the light of the fact that my wife asked me to go buy her some Spaten Optimator, but there was no Spaten Optimator to be had, I ended up picking a four-pack of Ianger Celebrator uh, Doppelbock, and I'd forgotten just how good of a beer that is. And also how fun it is to have, you know, goats dangling from your ear.
0: I, I was gonna say, man, I have I have a whole collection of those little plastic goats hanging on my beer fridge. Yeah, that is definitely, I think, maybe my favorite doppelbach. Optimator is very good too, but I, I really think that I have a preference for Celebrator.
1: Yeah, my only problem is my, um, my local store sells a four pack of that for fifteen bucks. Dang. Wow. Well, I need to well, go I need to go make my sad. own.
0: Go right ahead. I'm having a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, because after we uh, discussed how Steve Dressler, the brewmaster at Sierra Nevada, is retiring in the last episode, uh, I was at a store. They had it on sale. I thought to myself, boy, it's been a while since I bought some of that. And it is a damn fine pale ale. The hop character is present and well balanced uh some people will complain it has too much caramel flavor but to me it is exactly what an american pale ale should be
1: yeah well and i forget did we talk about it on the podcast or did we talk about it offline where it was funny that uh, sierra nevada pale ale was didn't win a gabf medal for pale ale because it was marked as being out of style
0: yeah, right. Uh, that was a story that was going around a couple years ago, where uh, they did not win a medal for it at GABF uh, because it was out of st- the judges felt it was out of style. And uh, what had really happened was that all the other American pale ales out there had gone out of style, so Sierra Nevada didn't match them anymore. Uh, humorous. Uh, who cares? It's still a damn fine beer. Go get some and drink it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you haven't had it in a while, go, go revisit it. You know, your memories are probably faded. So let's get started uh, while we're having these beers and talk a couple of bits of news. Uh, the first one of course is, well, we hate to talk about this sort of stuff, but it's always kind of sad and it happens. But Peter Simpson, who was one of the forces behind Simpson malting, uh, passed away. I believe like the age of 44, or 43, you know, basically my age. Uh, wow. after a, a short battle with cancer and uh, Peter was well known around the brewing industry as sort of a you know a very passionate advocate for you know quality beer ingredients and I think that's really reflected in in the malts that you get from Simpsons so uh, we're sorry to Peter's family and well we're sorry that the beer world lost a really good light in terms of advocating for something other than a hop
0: yeah, right. So, Peter, thanks for everything you did and uh may you have a great forever wherever you are.
1: And so hey, Denny, uh, not to not to keep going on the negative, but uh you know, it seems like the beer world is constantly full of sturm and drang. So, what's going on with the, you know, beer?
0: Yeah, um Lou Bryson posted uh, a quote from an article by Andy Morton from Just Drinks on his uh, Facebook feed. And uh, it was very interesting, and so I'm just going to read a little excerpt here. It says, The U.S. beer industry is on course for its worst year in almost a decade, an analyst warned. According to data from the Beer Institute, domestic volumes from February to April were down 5.3%, Bernstein's Trevor Sterling said today. The biggest three-month drop in over 10 years. Now, let me say that again the biggest three-month drop in over 10 years. The analysts said that coupled with slow beer trends for imported beer, this spelled bad news for the U.S. market. After a slow start, 2017 is shaping up to be the worst year for beer volumes since 2009, when combined industry volumes were down 2%. So it's very it's very interesting that after this uh, meteoric rise in beer sales the last uh, 5 to 10 years that now we're seeing things kind of turn around and head back down again and there there is a lot of supposition as to why that is uh one of the the things that i saw mentioned was that uh, there are too many big beers too many weird one-and-done beers out there. And uh, a number of people, uh, Lou included, were saying that uh, breweries should be taking the example of Firestone Walker with their 805 Cream Ale and making light, easy drinking beers. I don't know if that's the the real solution or not, because at this point, I don't know if anybody has put a a finger on exactly why this is happening.
1: Well, I mean, I think... The important part, and I don't know if we can see it in the data that's presented in the article, is that, I mean, look, I know that we are craft beer advocates and we're big fans of it and we think and live and breathe it and live and breathe those one-offs and those specialty products, but, I mean, here's the thing is, I mean, yeah, some of our big regional uh, microbreweries, New Belgium and Sierra Nevada, for instance, are down in sales, but truthfully, their sales slump is not going to put that level of impact into the whole national picture. I think, you know, most of what we're seeing here is a product of yield domestic lager slump. You know, uh, you know, the big guys. You know, uh, our cores, our ABIs, our millers. So that's what well, I suspect uh, is yeah. that a good portion of that slump is still that and it's also reflective with what we're seeing in imported beer. I'm as much as we love Belgian beers, the vast majority of the imported beer market sales is things like Heineken and Stella and Corona. So the fact that those are slowing down in that way, you know, I I would suspect that most of the trend is isolated to the usual sort of market segment that we tend to well, we tend to ignore, but other people pay a lot of attention to.
0: Except that we don't really know that for a fact. I mean, it could no, I, just I, well, be Well, I know,
1: that that's why I said I suspect.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and well, I was just doing the counterpoint to your point here, man. Uh, basically I suspect that it's down across the entire board on everything, craft beer as well as the big guys. Uh, obviously, when the big guys' are, volume is down, that's going to be more in terms of absolute numbers. But, you know, it's it's entirely possible that everybody's volume or most people's volumes were down by 5.3%. Mm. Um, it, it It really does bear... Some, some looking at and seeing where things are going. We're not saying that things are worse everywhere. I'm sure that there are breweries out there, especially craft breweries whose sales are up. But I also think that uh, Lou's points about, uh, you know, making more accessible beers are well taken. Because let's face it, guys, we are sitting here right now a bunch of beer geeks. We like the weird stuff. We like the strong stuff. But we're only a tiny portion of the beer market, I got to tell you. So, you know, it's it's like you have to be careful extrapolating your own feelings into the entire market when most of the market isn't people like you.
1: No, I know, but I I think when it says 5.3% volume total across the whole market, that's... Mm-hmm that's not the big hit in the craft beer segment. That's more the lager yeah, segment. Yeah,
0: well, yeah, I I hope not. Uh we'll just have to see, huh. There yep. have definitely been some uh, craft breweries who have uh, gone out of business recently mm-hmm. uh, or who've uh, you know scaled things back. So Basically, all this is is a warning shot, and let's keep an eye on it and see what happens.
1: Well, and what I thought was interesting was back in January, the same analyst who's quoted in the article that you just read about, uh, Trevor Sterling, who's one of the chief European analysts for uh, was it the Sanford Bernstein, which is an investment mm-hmm. anal- analysis firm, he actually noted that ABI and everybody else was up in Europe. So, you know, that they were having strong quarters there and bounding back and suspecting that Brazil was going to recover as well. So, it's interesting, but it also points to why the big brewers played the global game so that if uh, one market shifts, they're not uh, completely toast on their income level. So, yeah,
0: right. Exactly. Uh, kind of the same theory as how they use 17 different hops for Budweiser to uh, even out the differences.
1: Exactly. All right, well, now... so Speaking of hops... Yeah, I was going to say, now let's talk about the other side because, I mean, we just talked... I Like I said, my assertion is most of that volume business is due to the big guys because they're the only ones with the volume to move the needle. Now, on the other hand, we have this problem of you know the IPA, the IPification of everything, right? Where everything's become an IPA. There was a really great article published back in March that I discovered last week on hopculture.com entitled How Four Breweries Embraced IPAs without selling out the taproom dilemma. And it's by uh, Alex Weaver. And what I thought was really interesting was a whole bunch of uh, stuff, but it starts off with a quote from uh, Jim, uh, Jim cook from Sam Adams who was at some uh, event and was asked by an investor to say, Hey, you know, what sort of things should, what sort of advice should I take back to the small new England craft brewery I've invested in? And it says here cook didn't flinch. For any brewery to compete in today's market, he said, it must have a tap room serving fresh beer to its local community. It was an answer that even in a state with a thriving craft fan beer base illustrated the tension between success and compromise. So it's very much the point, and we just talked about this in the last episode, where I firmly believe that part of the reason why we can have all the breweries that we have and have as many of them survive as they have is because of the tap room uh, sales. You know that's now money directly in the pocket that's a chance to connect with your consumer base, build brand ambassadors for relatively low cost and you know really get capital funds in the door to help help you with any sort of expansion that you might need um, so the article goes on to actually list through four Massachusetts breweries and how they dealt with the whole thing of well you know look at some point in time when you open a tap room, you're suddenly going to get a wave of people in there who all they want to have is an IPA. And so they talked about uh, Idle Hands, uh, who uh, originally started off just wanting to do Belgian-inspired beers, so farmhouse ales and, and that sort of stuff. They did not want to do IPAs. And then what happened there, uh, Mystic Brewery, what they were, how they were doing it. It's just, even like a uh, Jack Abbey's Craft Loggers is also featured in here. They started off as a logger brewery, but kind of had to start to do some other things. And one of the assertions in the article is that uh, what a lot of these taprooms are finding out is that you have to have an IPA on tap to sort of pull people in and then get them to stick around long enough to try the other things you have.
0: That makes perfect sense, man. Um, I guess my problem comes from breweries that are so insistent upon maintaining is what what they see as their uh, ideological purity that they just absolutely will not brew an IPA. Now, that's fine if you're in the brewing game to make a statement. Cool, go for it, make your statement, I don't care. But let's face it, most people are in the brewing game because it's a business. And if you're running a business, you cannot afford to see money walking out the door. Uh, I ran my own business for 30 years. Uh, I did a number of things that I didn't want to do because I needed to keep the cash flow going. But I would figure out a way to uh, counter that, you know? Um, So, you know, I, I guess my feeling is that if your clientele is asking for an IPA and you're not making one, then maybe you're not a businessman and maybe you're trying to do something else with your beer. And while I'm ranting, let me also just talk for a second about the anti-IPA crowd that's out there, the people who are going, God, there are IPAs everywhere. Why aren't there other things than IPAs? Well, you know what? I have tried and brewed a lot of different beer styles. Contrary to what Drew thinks, uh, I can be an adventurous drinker. But you know what? When If I walk into a bar and... There's an IPA there. I'm going to order one every single time. I probably will order something else too to try it. But I don't like being told that I have a limited taste, that I'm not an adventurous beer drinker just because there's one thing that I like. Okay, end of rant. Sorry.
1: Well, I did think there, I know you had a discussion about this online with uh, Bob Sylvester. You know, my good, right. my good friend and who we just had on the podcast not that long ago. Yes. And Bob is one of those guys who is very much in the sort of anti-IPA, uh, IPification of everything, because he's very much a farmhouse brewer, and that's what he does. Now, Bob is also very fortunate that he's been in the business before the IP the IPification of everything and has a loyal following that is absolutely willing to follow him down the uh, the pipe of what he's doing because he does what he's doing very, very well. And he recognizes that, you know, yeah, there's money being lost there. But at the same time, he's got his product, he's got his image, and he's sticking very well to his brand and and is making good success at it. So I think the problem is that unless you are super focused and you happen to be lucky that your market will follow you down that focus, yeah, if you're you're not making an IPA, then you're going to lose customers.
0: Well, you know, and in that conversation that I had with Bob, it wasn't as much that he was anti-IPA and didn't want to make one as it was that he he just really can't, because his brewery is set up for the the styles of beers he makes, with all the microbes everywhere and everything. So uh, it would be very, very difficult for Bob to make an IPA, no matter what kind of business sense it might make.
1: And, of course, finally, our last story that we're going to cover today, just because well, we have to close out with some fun, is a recent set of videos that uh, sort of disturbed everybody on the Internet, uh, showing a Chinese brewery putting together fake counterfeit Budweiser cans and doing it by literally, I don't know, taking used cans out of a cardboard box and dunking them into a tub of beer with bare hands before throwing them into a seamer to get reseamed. Uh, (laughs) Uh,
0: That's clever Chinese.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I'll tell you, you know, if you got... If you got the ability to counterfeit something like that, I guess you'd go for it. They apparently, according to local reports, this is in uh, uh, Guangzhou, China. They said that the factory is apparently turning out 60, or sorry, turning out 600,000 cartons of fake beer a month. <laughs> that is oh, that is a lot of fake Budweiser there on the market. And uh, but, of course, Anheuser-Busch InBev is trying to shut them down because Anheuser Bush owns 14 breweries in China. So, hey, what are you doing?
0: Oh, good. I I love stories like that, man. I, I, I love the visual of those guys dunking the uh, empty cans into tubs of beer and then uh, reseaming them.
1: Oh yeah, it's precious.
0: <laughs> precious indeed.
1: Yeah, it, it certainly it certainly makes you want to stop and think about the. Uh, oh, I'm glad we have sanitary conditions.
0: Yeah, right, and, uh, and laws and inspectors and stuff like that. Okay, so uh, time to head over to the library and uh, talk about some new hop descriptor language. Mm. Stick around, we're going to be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Alrighty. we are here in the library. We're surrounded by books and sitting down in the comfy chairs that we have here. And uh, Drew has been digging into stuff from the MBAA, and he's going to talk about some new hop descriptors they've come up with.
1: Yeah, so the Master Brewers Association of America, uh, they have a podcast that they do, uh, I think every week, every other week. And it's a short podcast, about you know 15 to 30 minutes long. Audio quality is what it is. But... They have some really fascinating stuff, but most of it's really oriented towards the prober. Last week's episode, episode 39, they had an episode called uh, The Language of Hops, and it featured an interview with George Drexler of Barth Haas, which is a, a German hop uh, supplier, and it talked about trying to get away from sort of the classical uh, hop descriptions that are out there, citrus, floral, hoppy, fruity, and herbal. And the program they set up to actually describe 12 different descriptor categories to kind of get bigger and better identification of hop characters. And of course, it was all sort of inspired by the new hop varieties that we have out there, like things like Citra and Mosaic and Galaxy. They didn't fit into the old school way of describing hops, you know, those simple categories that they had. So what I thought was really cool about their process, and there are a lot of different people out there doing different sorts of language descriptors, because it's a kind of a popular hobby to do. But they actually went and worked with a professional perfumer, you know, so somebody whose whole thing is about, you know, trying to describe aromas and worked with them to set up a new vocabulary. And they came up with 12 main descriptor categories. And underneath that, they laid in additional terms. So if you've ever seen like the classic wine or beer flavor wheel, it's very much a similar concept where you have sort of big quadrants then divided down into other descriptors. And the whole idea is to help you, you know, use the vocabulary to drive into the exactly the thing that you're, that you're tasting. Because the big problem in tasting and describing things is not that most people can't sense what it is that they're tasting or smelling, it's that they can't put the right word to what the sensation is. So these devices are there to help you with that. And the 12 categories that they came up with were uh, floral, which includes things like geranium and rose and elderflower, citrus, which of course we all know, grapefruit and orange, uh, sweet fruits like melon, cherry, peach, mango, green fruits like pear, apple, gooseberry, white wine. Red berries, so like uh, cassis and blueberries and raspberries. Cream and caramel, so butter, honey, and vanilla. And that's the one that that makes me go out of hops, really. Mm. Uh, Woody and aromatic, so tobacco, leather, and pine. That's kind of your classic piney type things. Menthol, which is mint. Herbal, tarragon, basil, tea, that sort of uh, thing. Spicy, pepper, anise, you know, we know spice, right? Grassy hay, so the green grassy type thing or green peppers. And then finally, uh, vegetal, which is the celery, onion, garlic thing that we all kind of trying and avoid out of those late harvest hops. And they've sat down and started to work through taking hop varieties and putting them into this particular descriptor language. And I think this is pretty, pretty cool.
0: I, it's brilliant is what it is, man. And the, and the whole concept of working with a, per, a perfumer whose uh, entire business is to describe aromas, uh, just brilliant.
1: Yeah. So – like I said, they went they went through this. They didn't uh, cover it quite in uh, in as much detail as you want because obviously the papers are behind a paywall, but we'll include the notes that we have. Um, and really, I thought this was a great, I think it was a 20-minute episode uh, talking about this particular thing. So if you can get around the audio quality for the NBA podcast, uh, sometimes it's really worth a listen. I think this is a great episode to listen to. Uh, really kind of dig in and start to see like some of the different flavors that people are putting around these new hops and trying to really make sure that we're all talking the same vocabulary.
0: Yeah. You know what? When I uh, judge, I always have in my folder of stuff uh, a sheet of descriptor terms that uh, I use. Now, you have to be careful because you don't want to look at a term and decide a beer has it. But on the other hand, if there's something in a beer that you just cannot put your finger on, those sheets are a really good way to help you come up with a good way to describe it. And these terms are be going into my folder, believe me, man. That's uh, really great stuff.
1: Yep. Well, I think that's it for the library. Should we uh, head over to the to the brewery?
0: Yeah, time for a quick stop in the brewery. We're going to be uh, talking about tasting some malts and a great video that Drew made. We'll be right back. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com you yeah. over to the brewery there's all the shiny stainless steel stuff boy now that's alliterative huh? Mm. and uh drew is going to talk about a malt tasting that he just did
1: yeah so obviously if you listen to the podcast you know that mecca grade estate malts is one of the sponsors of the podcast and when they sponsored us they asked hey do you guys want to try some of the malt uh well i'm not adverse to somebody to, (laughs) to, to, to trying some new ingredients and the problem is, of course, you know, I didn't want to do just, you know, hey, let's go and uh, brew a, bu- a bunch of beer and see what we taste of it. Uh, I wanted to actually kind of put some more structure around what we were doing. I took a procedure that was described last year by Brees Malt and Ingredients Company where they described you know, what a Congress mash is, which is how you do a malt analysis if you're a, a big-time brewer. You know, but that involves like precise heating and stirry gizmos to keep everything moving. And, you know, a lot of scientific type work and equipment that we don't necessarily have here at home. So they made a home version that used a thermos and some precisely heated water, a coffee filter, and go. Now, I'm trying to do this with multiple malts, so I actually just used my sous vide immersion circulator that I talked about the other day and a water bath and a bunch of mason jars that I have. But the whole process itself is pretty simple. I put it it out in the video, and we'll do it right up on the website as well. But you basically take about 55 grams of your malt, grind it up into a, a powdered flour, I mean, like, actually flour flour, and you mix it with a certain amount of hot water for a period of time, let it sit for 15 minutes, and filter it, and then let it cool down to room temperature and smell it. And like I said, I did this with four different malts, three of which were from Mechagrade and one of which was from Great Western. I did uh, a Great Western Two-Row Pilsner, I did the Mechagrade Peloton, the Lamanta, and the Melodious. And the, the notes are all there in the, uh, in the video. And like I said, it will also be on the write up, but the basics of it were, I mean, I got a lot of really great characters out of just doing this little quick mash experiment. And now I have a better idea of if I want to go use one of these new malts and with all these new craft malts, malters that are rising up, God, this is a lot faster than trying to brew a batch of beer and suss out. Okay. What exactly am I getting? So with the Great Western Two-Row, I mean, it was that classic sort of dry, crisp, grainy, hay type thing. With the Mecca Grade Peloton, which is kind of their equivalent to the Two-Row, you know, same sort of thing. That same sort of crackery type thing, just a little bit more intense but less hay than the Two-Row was. The Lamanta, which is sort of their ale malt, kind of think like a Maris Otter. Again, more kind of a caramelized pie crust as opposed to like what I usually think of out of uh, Maris Otter, I get more of a biscuit type thing. And then the Melodius had, uh, that's supposed to be their Munich equivalent. And oh boy, that was like super Munich. That was punch you in the face Munich. So really the most intense of all these malts. But all told, it took me about an hour to do these four little samples. And that's mostly because I was teaching myself and filming it at the same time. And really, it's just a really nifty, quick uh, way to do it. Now, I'm going to do it again because I also have some more uh, mecha grade malts and I have some other malts that people have sent me over time. And by the way, if you want to have some of these malts tested uh, or you want to have us talk about some of these malts, feel free. Like I said, it's 55 grams of malt. You know, you can reach out to us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com and uh, let us know if you have like a favorite craft malster in your area. If you're a craft malster or you're a big malster and you'd like to have you know, this kind of done and talked about, just reach out and let us know. Like I said, the video is on YouTube, it's on our YouTube channel, and there will be a write-up coming up uh, before too long on the Experimental Brewing website, where we'll actually walk through all the different malts that we tried, and I really actually, you know what, I tell you, I I didn't think I would get a lot out of this, I thought it would just be kind of a lark thing to do, but man, amazing what you can actually find out just by doing this little experiment.
0: Yeah, uh, I think it was great, man. I really enjoyed watching you do it on video, and uh, I can't wait to try something like that myself. Uh, I have some uh, mecha grade malts to try and uh, we have another uh, custom maltster over in the eastern part of the state called Gold Rush Malt and uh, he gave me uh, a bag of malt that he made accidentally that uh, tastes real interesting when I just chew on it so I got to try this. So, Okay so like Drew said we will put a link to that video on our website so you can go check it out yourself and if uh, you're a craft maltster out there and you want us to do the same thing with some of your malt, send us an email at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. We're going to take a quick break now and head over to the lounge for some interview listening. Stick around. Interested in making wine or meat? Don't settle for lesser yeast. Instead use Vintner's
1: Harvest. Just ask Tyler Barber from Adventures in Homebrewing, who says, Vintner's Harvest yeast is all I have used for the past four years. I've done several small test batches with Vintner's Harvest, and I really like the MA33 for meads and fruit wines. Vintner's Harvest seems to tailor their yeast strains to the styles of meads and wines the home Vintner is most likely to make. Find Vintner's Harvest yeast wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold.
0: It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time we talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. We're lounging again here in the comfy chairs in the lounge. We have our pipes lit and uh We're going to listen to some interviews that Drew did. So since I'm not involved here, I'm just going to let him take it.
1: Yeah, so I figured this would be fun. Uh, These are just a couple of quick interviews. Uh, We're going to actually start at the Southern California Homebrewers Festival, where I was back in the beginning of May with good old Mr. Marshall Schott. And Marshall and I ran around the festival making idiots of ourselves. So expect to hear some more of that audio if it's up to Denny's snuff uh, before too long. We started the whole thing by, well, we spoke. But then afterwards, when we're done speaking, we decided, well, let's go run around the fest and go talk to people about their beer. And what better place to start than with the Maltose Falcons, my homebrew club. And we actually went and talked to a good friend of mine, Kevin Baranowski, who's gotten sort of a bit famous for doing a sweet stout that he puts on draft, but he puts on draft through a randle of coffee beans. Now, in times past, he's done different flavored coffee beans, uh, you know, regular coffee beans, different roast, different uh, bean types, but it's always whole beans in a randle. And this time through, he decided to do bourbon-soaked coffee beans. So these were coffee beans that had been soaking in bourbon for quite a while before actually going into the randle. Uh, oh boy, did it did it pack a punch. <laughs> so while we sit back, we'll take a listen to this. And then after this, we're going to go talk to a good old Nick of Yeast Bay, uh, on a recent trip that I took to San Francisco where we hooked up, uh, spent some time ha- having some beers at Fieldwork and, well, then we went and had a burger and talked about what's going on with the Yeast Bay. Alright, so uh, we're here at the 2017 Southern California Homebrews Festival. This is Drew obviously, because you're not hearing Denny, but who
2: are you hearing? Hello, everybody. Everybody, it's me. It's Marshall Shot. Yes, and I'm holding Mar- Marshall hostage. Am eating should... coffee beans now? Hey, coffee beans are good. Oh, and they're chewy. And they're bourbon They're bourbon chewy.
1: Yeah. So we're actually going to talk in a little bit with uh, the guy behind the reason why we're chewing bourbon <laughs> coffee beans. But right now, we're actually having a very nice uh, sweet stout that's been randled through coffee beans.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, Marshall, this is... Uh, uh, Marshall and I
2: just got done giving uh, two supper talks. Marshall, you talked about... I spent my time talking about... A, a, a subject I don't feel very... Um, like I know very experimenting in beer (laughs) we basically kind of talked about the different types practical pragmatic approaches to experimentation as well as more uh comparative approaches to experimentation the stuff that we're doing uh more regularly
1: yeah absolutely and then i just gave a talk on uh simplicity (laughs) you're not not, not supposed to drink that yet man oh Uh, it was (laughs) hot yeah so yeah i just gave a talk on simplicity nice little you know short talk to uh, enforcing the idea of hey everybody Pay attention. Don't overcomplicate this.
2: That was awesome. Yeah. Uh, and so now this is your first time at SCHF. This is my first time. Yes.
1: What are you thinking?
2: I'm thinking that this is yet another one of those uh, fests. It's not really a conference. It's a festival. Yep. Um, that I wish I would have been going to for the, tw- was it 25 years this year or 26 years this year? Yeah, I think. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, that I've been going to every year. It's really an awesome event. Uh, the way it's set up, how you know, um, y- you are actually camping and then you walk to the festival grounds from your campsite mm-hmm. and just drink beer all day and hang out with cool people and listen to weirdos talk on stage. It's yeah. a really great thing. Yeah. Well, and,
1: and soon we'll have bands playing. But, yeah, I mean, we right. are here on sort of a flat plane and there are 40-some-odd homebrew clubs all in sort of this giant, enormous horseshoe, and no, I mean giant enormous horseshoe, <laughs> and everybody has, I mean, I think the smallest booth I've seen here today has like eight beers on tap.
2: Yeah, eight or more. I mean, this, even the smallest one has a ton to choose from. Yeah, yeah.
1: and we're sitting behind the Maltos Falcons booth at the moment just to get out of the wind, because today is a windy day, but I my club here, we've got 37 beers on tap and a whole bevy of meads for people to go drink, and it's like that for a lot of these clubs. Yeah. I mean, and we have, you know, the Society of Barley Engineers with their lambic project as well. You know, pouring amazing lambic beers. I mean, you're you're getting a chance to see like stuff you would never see in a microbrew world.
2: Yeah, and I, I what I what I really appreciate about events like this that are homebrew focused is you're 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 seeing things in a different way, but you're also tasting beers that you will never be able to taste unless you're here. Yeah. Right? And, and I know Society of Lambic and Barley Engineers over there, they, they have this um, Lambic program that mm-hmm. they just do all the time. And so they've always got, what is it, 12 different Lambics, different oh, yeah. flavors, different years, different ages. Well, and they, that have, that, that, they have that
1: one goose that's five years, uh, five yeah. years of gooses is blended yeah. together. It's,
2: and it's aww. amazing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And we got... You know, one of our friends over here, just to show you like the stupidity that people get up to a hazy New England IPA with gold glitter in it. <laughs> because why the hell not? You might as well poop like a unicorn. Uh, and I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things about this. I mean, not only is like getting to see the people that I see again and again year for year, obviously that's a different experience for you, but being able to just walk by between all these booths. And there's always going to be at least at one of these booths, or sorry, there will always be at every one of these booths, at least one beer that makes you go,
2: huh. That's interesting. Absolutely. Uh, and there's usually also one that makes you go, Oh, whoa, whoa, that's not going to go into my body. <laughs> yeah. well, and, and, not to hate, but you know what I mean? Well, and truthfully,
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, you wander around, you find some beers where you're like, no, that is not a Dortmund export. That is something terrible. <laughs> and you deserve to be tra- brought upon war crime charges for that
2: one. <laughs> Throwing but, shame, man. Well, I mean, that's It's, I mean, true it's, though. Just, it's
1: yeah. the nature of a homebrew. Sometimes yeah. it's good, sometimes it's not. But it's always going to be fun.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it is. It's fun even to try the stuff that doesn't end up tasting very good, you know, because you're trying it. At least you're trying something new. Some of us enjoy it. The oddness of that, I think.
1: Yeah, we always tell people that you go to HumberCon, uh, or National Humber's Conference, depending upon your age and persnickety about the name. Yeah. And that it's one of the greatest experiences that you can have as a homebrew because it is a concentrated dose of people who aren't going to glaze their eyes over when you start talking about beer. Yeah. And one of the highlights of that is always Club Night. Mm-hmm. This is like Club Night sort of blown up and made larger and longer.
2: Yeah, well, it's yeah. The way I was the way I was thinking about it uh, when you and I were talking about the differences between this and club night earlier is that this is more like club entire day. Yeah, it's you. You have the entire day to come out and literally just pounce around from booth to booth and be lazy and eat great food. They've got a bunch of food trucks out here. Drew and I had amazing Uh, grilled grilled cheese cheese with spicy salami and jalapenos. (laughs) you know and it's just it's it's so again it, it's got its similarities you know whereas homebrew con is much more conference focused and conference heavy SCHF is drinking fo- you know enjoying beer yeah. focused and, no, it's, and uh, it's the party it's the party yeah really no. and,
1: and the party doesn't just stop here I mean obviously you found out last night you were here when the commercial beers were pouring and some of the homebrews were pouring but then after everybody was done here in the camp or in the fest ground, Everybody wandered back to the grounds, and suddenly trick-or-treating happened.
2: It, it's Yeah, trick-or-treating. It's Camp Party 101. I mean, it is everything you expect from camping with a bunch of people who brew beer. <laughs>
1: and, and it's it's always great fun. I mean, these are two of the, the best days I think you can have as a homebrew here in Southern oh, California. Yeah, yeah. And it's surprisingly cheap, and it is surprisingly awesome.
2: Yep, and you're supporting an incredible cause. It's the California Homebrewers Association that works together. Uh, you know, symbiotically, it seems, with all of these amazing clubs uh, to create this rad festival that, that uh, I look forward to coming back to.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I've been coming here, oh, I don't know, for 15 years now, uh, on and off. And I, I always look forward to it unless I have something else I have to do. So now the question is, given that this is your first year, Mr. Fess Virgin, and nobody made you wear a Fess Virgin sign, apparently. I guess that's a a benefit of being a speaker. (laughs) I have seen them, though. Yeah, Yeah, there were a few of those running around. No, that is not a tradition. Yes, that is asshole friends, (laughs) but it is a thing. Uh, So now you, having experienced this for the first time this year, what do you think are you coming back? No.
2: So, like you, uh, I'm a very busy person and if I but this is one of those events that if I can squeeze <laughs> it into my squeeze it into my you know, I, I think a lot of guys who are into into brewing that um, it's kind of like or I say guys, but anybody, it's kind of the thing that they do Son's partner and I, I know that there are people out there, married couples or partners who, who are brewing together. But you know, I know men and women who brew, and then they're, but their mate, you know, and their children don't get into it with them. This is one of those events where you could bring your whole family down oh, yeah. and just have an awesome camping trip, and then throughout the day, just kind of bump over to the to the to the beer area, grab some beers, go back go back, you know, do whatever you want the campsite. It's just camping. It's camping with beer involved. And it's so there's a part of me that is kind of hoping I can convince the old wifey to bring the kids down. But with school and everything, it makes Mm -hmm. that a little bit tough, but it's definitely something that's in the books. I want to do it. Yeah.
1: Particularly if you have like a trailer or, you know, anything else like that. I mean, yeah, we're, you walk through the campsite, you see people there with their dogs and yeah, the kids are running around and somebody's paying attention. And I've even seen it where like Yeah, mom and dad are are tagging off, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, honey, your turn. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I've seen so many families here, and in fact, I was able to hang out with some last night, and their kids are great, and kind of remind me of my own, so yeah, this is one that I think is good for the family, even. Yeah, and
1: it's in a great little location, it's here in Temecula, Temecula has some really awesome breweries in it, this fest obviously also has a very long storied history to it, with the original campgrounds being on the Sluza Winery, a.k.a. Vinny Sluza, a.k.a. Russian River, you know, down here, and it's grown ever since, and it been back and forth to a couple different places, and just an amazing, amazing time.
2: Yeah, really, it is.
1: Yeah, and, and of course, you even, well, I mean, you presented some beers today as an experiment,
2: Sort of, right? Yeah, yeah it's kind of, kind of a quasi give, experiment.
1: Yeah, just to give people a sense <laughs> of like what this means and like what it was uh, another one of the short and shotties. <laughs> yeah, so um,
2: the one of the guys who helped organize the the entire uh, SoCal Homebrew Fest down here, Andy, um, he and I were talking about what I might be able to do to to have a beer available during the my talk, and so he agreed to brew a short and shoddy beer for us, and so together, very quickly. <laughs> We threw together this really simple recipe, I think it's 100% Pilsner malt. Uh, let's see, one, one or two hop editions of uh, Continental, you know, noble hops. And he did a 30 minute mash, a 30 minute boil, and he fermented with a W3470 you know, everybody's favorite lager yeast uh, at 66 67 degrees and he brewed forbidden it temperature. 2 weeks 6 days ago to this day and it was pretty almost bright i mean it wasn't it wasn't commercial bright but it was close yep. um and tasted like a german pilsner to me well and and this is the thing i i always i i
1: have argued now for a number of years that home brewers hold on to their beer for too long we right? we're too fascinated with the idea of, like, oh, this needs age. Yeah. And now that we have a better understanding of yeast mechanics and yeast health and yeast viability and fermentation control, there's no reason for us to uh, to, to do the sort of long extended periods.
2: I, I, I think there's an aspect uh, you know, I, I, so I'm kind of developing this hypothesis that the reason we do a lot of what we do today, and I know this will ruffle some feathers, and that's not my intent, but I, th- I think our reasoning is based on what we had available to us, our resources back when brewing became this thing, right? And so back then... It's all based it,
1: on the knowledge of the 70s and the 80s.
2: I can't think of the term, but th- this idea that, oh, the environment's cool, this yeast uh, or this beer came out really good in this cool environment, mm-hmm. and what we've done is we've flipped the reality of of we only fermented cool because that's what was there to, oh, no, now you have to ferment cool. Right. And, and it, it may, what kind of amazes me is that on... It, that, that it, it kind of has taken this long. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who have been fermenting loggers warm, um, and they probably just lie about it because they don't want it to, to get all the hate mail, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, it's that, 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 that kind of theory that, that, you know, we, are, we can do things differently because we have more knowledge. We have more resources today. Just because they did things that way back in the past doesn't mean they had to. It could have just been that that's what they did and it worked.
1: Well, and I also think, I mean, looking at it from a commercial point of view, right, you know, it's like obviously commercial brewers, they would have an advantage if they could always turn around a short and shoddy type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you still see Budweiser as much as I love to bag on them. You know, they, <laughs> they take a lot of time. Yeah. And I think part of that's tradition, but I also think part of it is that there's a different sort of biomechanical thing going on at volume in comparison to what we're doing. The, yeah. I, I think so, too. Yeah, but we right. got to
2: get that tested out. Yeah. To, to there's a, there's sure. a big
1: difference between trying to get something to settle six inches versus you know, you know six feet.
2: Well, absolutely, and the different amounts of pressure, uh, volumetric pressure, and uh, even I think you know, uh, your the, the exothermic heat from fermentation in the center, in the center of a you know forty barrel batch of fermenting beer is going to be different uh, than it is in my five, or it's going to be more difficult to control. yes yeah, absolutely. So. Well,
1: and I thought I had a good question from somebody uh, asking about the. Uh, short-run batches, you know, the smaller batches, and how much more variability that introduces. And it was like, yeah, yeah you're totally right, but I I totally think that the biggest issue about people's variability is practice. <laughs> true.
0: And the, true. More, the yeah. more
1: practice you get, and a lot of small batch brewers brew more frequently for obvious reasons, Yeah. I think the better that you become. So, uh, I think we should talk about a beer that we're having in front of us, because, I mean, obviously, we've, we've been wandering around in the morning just to have a couple of beers before yep. we get talked, because... Uh, Frankly, folks, you have to be lubed up before you have a conversation in front of everybody. (laughs) And we had some great beers over at the Society of Lambic. We had, you know, like little beers here and there, you know, a great Mosaic double IPA. As much as I don't like Mosaic as a hop, I thought that one actually came out pretty well. Yeah, yeah. And we had some great collabs. But now uh, we're back here, like I said, in the Maltos Falcons booth. And we are currently having one of my brew mentors and good friends, uh, Kevin Baranowski, his sweet stout. And, uh, Kevin, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your Sweet Stout that we have in front of us.
3: Uh, The Sweet Stout, it is a Milk Stout style. Uh, This particular beer is a 1068 Original Gravity, 1021 Final Gravity, uh, that I then, this time around, the first batch that they're having right now, was I took the chocolate-flavored coffee beans, I soaked them in mason jars on a (laughs) Kentucky bourbon. Yeah, I'm not getting that at all. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't get it either. Well, you you may have gotten some off the second batch, so you're not getting as much of it. Plus, it was different when we started this at uh, 11 a.m. and it's now 2.30, that it's been diluted down a little bit. And, And to be honest, I felt the same way. Though we're sort of cheating it now, because we have taken <laughs> we have taken the shots of the leftover bourbon coffee flavored bourbon and and sort of we're calling it a redneck car bomb and dropping the which uh, Shall we? uh I mean, drew I'm, already I'm, did. I'm already in there because right. I made But we're calling it a redneck car bomb the only, well
2: Marshall has s- literally
3: dropped the plastic right, shot, glass the a sh- a glass yeah. shot glass. It's not the same as a glass shot glass that you can Mar- drop Marshall, in there. Marshall
1: is now learning that plastic floats as opposed to glass. Right.
3: So uh, I, I agree. <laughs> I, I have made this beer uh, sans the, uh, the bourbon for the last couple of years. So this time around, I decided to soak the coffee beans. And they've been soaking since January the 21st in the bourbon, which was a... Evan Walker, is Evan it? Williams, Evan 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 Williams, Kentucky Bourbon. Uh, they've been soaking in there since, and then I put those particular coffee beans into our filter water filter, which is called a Randall, and we ran the sweet stout through that. Uh, I agree. I didn't get as much of the uh, bourbon flavor off of them as I had hoped it would. Yeah, um, until until you do the death charge, right? Until you, you actually do. take the shot, <laughs>
2: yeah, right? Yeah, this uh, th- there's bourbon in this beer. That's for show,
3: sure. <laughs> right? <laughs> now, when you when you do it that way, it absolutely does. Now, here at the homebrewers festival, we're not technically supposed to be doing it that way. So, um, I think I will just sort of stick with the uh, traditional method of running mm-hmm. it through the coffee beans, which are a chocolate flavored coffee bean that I use for that.
1: Well, and I was going to say, I mean, it, to me, like. I've had other batches. Kevin makes this beer for a good number of our festivals. Because right. uh, you have a couple things you do. You have an apricot lager. You have an American lager. You have these things that well, you've been coming to this fest now for... This is
3: my 20th one in a row. There you go. He, he,
1: he is a solid marcher, and he, he's been known to bring... Yeah, you know, sort of certain beers, and people actually expect you to have those beers. Exactly.
3: The the apricot lager, people expect the apricot lager, so that's why I make it every year. Yeah.
1: And, and in the last couple of years, you've added the sweet stout with coffee beans to your repertoire. Correct. And, you know, I always think it's fun because you have a, you have this whole great presentation to it. It's got a, a Randall with a coffee bean sign and its own independent tap, freestanding away from everything else. And it really kind of
3: draws attention to it. And and the way we've, we've traditionally been doing it is, is running it through. It basically has a pound of whole coffee beans, non, non-crushed, not broken, whole coffee beans through it. Um, the bourbon-soaked beans were a whole pound. Uh, I just changed it because you can generally do five gallons for a, fi- a one-pound randle of coffee beans before it starts losing the flavor, at least in my opinion anyway. Mm-hmm. So I just changed kegs. And so I put in a fresh batch of chocolate flavored coffee beans to run through. So this ba- second batch is not on the bourbon, just the coffee beans only.
2: So you keep talking about the chocolate flavored coffee. Are you flavoring them yourself or you buy like whole beans that have already been pre-flavored with coffee? I, I do buy the whole beans that have already been pre-flavored with coffee. Oh, that's cool. With yeah, chocolate. The, the chocolate comes through really right. nicely. Yeah. Right.
3: And I personally feel that in a sweet style, because you've got lactose in there already, yeah. that adding the chocolate, even though in a sense, this recipe does have chocolate malt to it, but by adding the chocolate beans to it, you pick up more of the chocolate flavor to it. Well, I mean,
1: this really comes off to me like mocha.
3: Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's, that's the sweetness. goal, right?
1: That's exactly well, the goal for it. Cause I mean, you've got the coffee, you've got the chocolate. I mean, I'm not a big sweet coffee person, I like this thing, right? And it becomes even sort of more uh, festive and fun with the depth charge in it. Absolutely. I was
2: going to ask you, Drew, uh, as ta- drinking this with me now. We just poured our. Well, some of us dropped our actual cups in there. <laughs> but um, what, what if maybe not better, but what are your thoughts on the differences between them? Because that adding that bourbon changed this beer, in my opinion, pretty significantly.
1: Yeah, and absolutely. What I would say is, I'm getting a strong oak note that I wasn't getting before and that's obviously just from the bourbon of being in the beans. But then the other thing I'm also getting is
3: I think the sweet stout on its own, I mean, you have a fair amount of lactose in this, right? Yes, yes there is. There's at least a pound of lactose for this 5-gallon batch. Right. So when it when you've
1: got all that lactose in it, it gives a real thickness to the beer. And I, and, and not in, not it's assertively thick. It's not like
3: Also, because there is also dextrin in there also. So, between the dextrin and the the lactose in there, it really gives it a body. Right. And so, the other effect I'm getting is that bourbon
1: comes in. Not only does the oak tannin kind of cut through, but that extra spirit kind of cuts through that sweetness as well. And actually kind of turns it into less of a sweet stout and more like somebody made an export stout that has a lot of chocolate flavor Yeah, it. you Yeah, know, you
3: know what would be interesting? It almost would be, rather than serving it through the beans, it almost would be interesting to take the beans, soak the beans in the bourbon, and then sort of like dry hop the beans into dry the bean. keg itself, dry bean it, into the keg itself to try to get more of that bourbon flavor into the keg uh, as opposed to just trying to pick it up as it goes through the filter. Absolutely. And I mean... Like I said, I think this, I mean, I like it both ways. Yeah. Uh,
2: I, obviously, this way, I think, packs more of a punch. I agree. It, yeah. The, <laughs> this way is, is more, uh, like, the way I talk about it is like, you, sometimes you would eat something or you taste something and you swallow it and then it's kind of gone and it was great. And that's kind of how I experienced, comparatively, the, the unadulterated version of this. And then this, it's just like your mouth, it doesn't leave your mouth. You've got oak, vanilla, like, a, like the vanillins from the oak, uh, and of course, the coffee. And then after, I, I also chewed on some coffee beans before taking a sip. And so it's just like this crazy, like you know, uh, uh, palette of flavors. It's really neat. Oh,
1: yeah. well, and I, I, really wish that people. I mean, obviously, I know we're talking about this inside of a stout, and I think stouts and coffee are very traditional. And porters and coffee, you know, people like that pairing: the dark and the dark, or the dark versus the roast. One of the ones I remember that was a real discovery was when we did the Homebrewers Con in Seattle a couple of years back. And we threw a batch of American wheat beer into a randall with coffee beans. Mm. And how amazing a beer that was. I think people should really explore more of like what just coffee will give to a beer as a flavor, as opposed to necessarily just going, coffee with dark. But, I mean, here, I mean, this still works. I mean, there's a reason why people do it. It works.
3: It works, yeah. yeah. Right. I, I think, too, it's all based on the acidity levels also because you're going to get bigger acidity through the darker beers. Than, you know, if you tried to pump this, like I have an American lager, if I tried to pump this through coffee through an American lager, it'd be interesting if I could still keep that same color but pick up a little bit of coffee
2: through there. Well, that's what I was going to comment on. I um, you know, you got this whole, what, uh, it's, I, I think it's already dying trend, but the, um, the, the pale stout... White stout, white stout, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think I think the key there was using whole coffee beans, which leach no color if you do it cold, um, and letting those basically cold steep in the beer for an extended amount of time, and that was where you got that roast character without getting any color. Um, I've never I've never done it, but. It would make sense to me that, that that color is more of a function of the heat, ste- the hot steep as, as opposed to the cool steep.
1: Yeah. I mean, you still pick up a little bit of color, but you, yeah. but you don't pick up anywhere near as much as if you're doing it as you know, just a, a hot thing. So, all right. Well, Kevin, that's your, your sweet stout with the depth charge and the coffee beans. and the, <laughs> you know, It is both a go and a slow down beer at the same time, yeah. I think. Right. Uh, anything else that you can think to say that you, know, that you want to transmit to the audience?
3: Uh, it was It was an interesting experiment, you know to see if we could pick up some of it i, I honestly honestly, I feel like i didn 't get as much of the bourbon character out of it as I would liked, just going through the Randall. I think that we have solved it by now experimenting with dropping the leftover bourbon into the beer We, 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 have, we have solved the problem by by boosting we, exactly. Uh, so it, I think it was a fun experiment to try it and see how it, sort of how it went. If nothing else, we have chewable coffee beans that are <laughs> bourbon flavored now that we, if we only had some chocolate, you yeah.
1: know. Well, it, and it's weird because the coffee beans have softened to the point where they're kind of, they're not completely soft, but they're kind of this weird leathery state that kind of makes you go, I'm not sure what
2: I'm chewing on. Yeah. This feels right, weird. Right. It's like right. you're
1: chewing on a beetle. <laughs>
2: That's, it. It, yeah, or something like that. I've never chewed on a beetle before, but it was an interesting <laughs> texture.
1: <laughs> Dude, you got to get with the times. Insects are the next protein source.
3: That's what I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, hey, Kevin, thank you so much. Absolutely. All right. It's, it's always a fun experiment to do every year. And Well, that's homebrewing. That's homebrewing, right. Homebrewing is experimentation, you know, the, the, either the, scientific or culinary. The only other thing that I'm looking forward to doing at some point, whether I do it with the bourbon again or not, on this particular type of beer serving method, is to start serving it on uh nitro a nitro sorry yeah, i was lost i just dropped on the word uh to so start serving on nitro and coming through a nitro tap um which was sort of the plan for this year but i just uh. got bogged down and didn't get an opportunity to do so so i'm hoping in the future to start serving this on nitro
1: See, uh, yeah i think nitro I mean, nitro would turn this into like creaminess i mean that would be awesome
2: it would be a dessert i mean this on nitro with the bourbon and the coffee that would be that would be good
1: all right, perfect. Well, thank you, Kevin. Absolutely. All right, and then, uh, guys, this is going to be our dispatch from, uh, at least for this moment, from Southern California Homebrew Festival. We may or may not be back, but, uh, you know, hey, Marshall and I are going to be hanging out, and uh, who knows what we'll get up to except for maybe more beer drinking. That's a definite. All right, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Marshall.
2: Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Kevin. You got it. All
1: right. All I can tell you is those beans, those beans were deadly. <laughs>
0: I can imagine bourbon and coffee all at once. Uh, sounded like you guys were having just too much fun.
1: Oh, yeah. no, And uh, trust me when I say that uh, I still need to learn to drink at my uh, new weight. Because, oh boy, SCHF is a long day. And, uh, yeah, that's a lot of beer.
0: Yeah, I-, I need to learn to drink at my new age because I can't drink as much as I used to either. Uh, you guys are now about the age I was when I started brewing. So uh, I-, I envy you, believe me. <laughs> so uh, on to on to something a little bit more sedate. Drew talked to Nick Impeliteri from uh, Yeast Bay, and Nick always has some interesting thoughts on yeast, so let's listen to those.
1: All right, so I'm sitting here. Uh, we are in Berkeley, California, uh, and we're having a couple of nice pints of beer. I'm sitting here with Nick. Nick, say hi to everybody. Howdy. All right, Nick, just in case everybody doesn't know who you are, who are you? I am Nick Capellari, the owner
4: and uh, chief East Wrangler at the East Bay. All right. and what are you drinking right now? I'm
1: drinking a Fieldwork Hazy Train, uh, and I'm drinking a Faction Pale Ale. Ah, cheers, Faction. <laughs> Gotta have that Roger Davis throwback. Cause Roger, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think Danny's ever had to uh, bleep a podcast as much as the times that we have. Sure. i
4: <laughs> A lot of f bombs thrown out there. My no, favorite right.
1: word. Yeah. yeah. Well, so now it's been. Man, I think it's been well over Over a year. year. Yeah, Yeah. over over a year. So why don't you uh, go ahead and tell us where the yeast bay has gone since, because I know you guys have been going through some growth.
4: Yeah, we've been doing, uh, over the last year or two, a lot more commercial sales to a lot of commercial breweries, a lot more homebrew wholesale. to homebrew stores. really trying to get as many strains out to homebrewers as possible. And uh, what we've really been focusing on over the last year is the growth of our beta program, which we launched... Uh, about April or May of 2016 with our lactobacillus blend. Mm -hmm. And really what it was is um, a way for us to get new strains out to home brewers and craft brewers faster. So our typical process is doing a lot of in-house isolation, characterization, uh, test fermentations, then we'll bank yeast at White Labs. Mm -hmm. That's a process. And then we'll make it available to home brewers and craft brewers. But really what we're doing now is... Uh, kind of cutting White Labs out on the on the back end when we're doing some experimental stuff and saying, hey, instead of banking everything with them, uh, when we find something we think is interesting, we think we like, let's try to just get that out to homebrewers and craft brewers as soon as possible. So we launched the beta program a uh, little over a year ago, and it's been uh, really successful. We launched with the Lactobacillus Blend, and since then we've had a number of... Um, we have our TYB House Sour Blend, mm-hmm. which is kind of the sour blend that I maintain in-house, Uh, pretty complex. It's essentially a combination of our our melange and our amalgamation, but it has strains that we continually add to it that potentially it's not a product that we make that's manufactured at White Labs, but it's something that we like the character of, so we'll add it to the blend. It's kind of um, uh, a running total of a lot of the strains that we like.
1: Mm-hmm. that we so,
4: isolate over time
1: so it's just a, it's a big old conglomeration of everything good it is it is it's, so, and it's,
4: it's delicious a lot of commercial brewers have actually had a lot of success really quick uh quick turnaround sours um and aside from that we've also launched a number of uh, single strain Britannomyces uh isolates that a lot of people have had a lot of uh, success with on the homebrew and, and craft
1: brew fronts well so now if one of our listeners wanted to get involved with your beta program. What does that take? I mean, is it literally like, hey, go watch the website and order a special strain? Or? Well,
4: so that's the nice thing. Uh, essentially, uh, when we launched, we had a few beta testers, which included Marshall from Blue- mm-hmm. Brewlosophy, um, Ed Coffee, mm-hmm. uh, and then um, Brian from uh, Chugak Brewing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we thought instead of just making a small group of people you know, making our strains uh, accessible to a small group of people. Let's try to make them accessible to to really anybody that wants to use them. So basically, I'll typically prop up enough for maybe 40 or 50 homebrew pitches, mm-hmm. and then about 20 to 40 pitchable barrels uh, for commercial brewers. So uh, typically, that stuff goes pretty quick, and. You know, people are just really excited to try something new and uh, develop new new flavors in their
1: beers. So, if I was somebody who wanted to get into one of those uh, portions, would I just like sign up for your newsletter and then wait? And then it's like Ticketmaster sales, like go rush, go
4: get it. The newsletter is a great place to go to. Uh, we always announce the beta releases on our newsletter. We announce them on our Facebook typically, and, and we're very open about the progress that we're making. So when we're actually in the process of isolating something, we try to get people as involved as possible and let them know like, hey, you know, we're, we're isolating this strain, um, uh, whether it's you know, Britannomyces, Saccharomyces, something that we think is going to be interesting. Uh, these are some of the characteristics that we've seen in it so far. This is when we're going to hopefully make it available um, so yeah, it's just a way to try to get brewers involved and, and help them evolve their brews with, uh, new use in bacteria.
1: So now this is stuff that you're propagating effectively in house. Yep. And you're making that available on small scale. And then, Very
4: small scale, so the largest typically we'll do is a thirty barrel batch for mm-hmm. a commercial brewer. It typically takes us a little bit longer to turn around just because we don 't have the capacity of white labs
1: yeah i'm I'm still just trying to struggle to think of the thirty barrel pitch as a small scale, but <laughs> it's well, it 's the largest small scale we do so now. Have you have you taken anything out of the beta program from just in house propagation over to White Labs or
4: absolutely yeah uh,
1: a number of things the TYB house sour blend is one of those things that
4: it's a little too complex and it's something that we we essentially maintain it as a number of different cultures as a number of different Brett cultures a number of different Saccharomyces cultures and then a number of different Lactobacillus cultures mm-hmm. and Pediococcus cultures it's something that we don't want to put that burden on on White Labs it's it's a lot to propagate. Um, But what we have transitioned over to them are a number of the uh, Bertanomyces single strains. Mm -hmm. Our TYB 207, which is a really great strain out of the Northeast. Actually kind of uh, imparts, is very attenuative, imparts a really fruity, kind of a sweet tart Mm -hmm. almost character to the beer. Very good, very crisp. And then our TYB 184, which is really a a good meld of of kind of fruit and, and barnyard funk. Almost like a little bit of like citric acid character. Uh, very very tasty, but those two we've actually transitioned over. Uh, plus, on the Saccharomyces end, our uh, Flanders Specialty Ale, mm-hmm. uh, which was cultured out of a uh, uh, Belgian beer. And then our Wallonian 2 and Wallonian 3, which were both cultured out of uh, uh, different Belgian beers.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I don't know if you saw the the tasting that I did. That actually, it received a lot of attention. I on, did. On I did on facebook so that was that was kind of good to see. I like, think I
4: liked <laughs> yeah,
1: but it, it, no and, it, and I thought that was a, I thought that was a very great thing and i and I want to do more of that you know take take those strains and put them up and just go taste them on camera so that people can go at least have one opinion about what they taste like and I don't know some people are kind of silly enough to possibly trust my opinion yeah <laughs> but um. So now, what do you see as the value of doing the beta program? Is it just that quicker turnaround on the feedback? Is it the fact that you don't have to go through all the isolation scales and like people are more willing to take a risk on the smaller scale? Or I think it benefits
4: both me and the brewer in that, for me, I do get more feedback on the strains, and it's not from a small population of of brewers that maybe want to tell me something that I want to hear, but mm-hmm. it's from a, a population of people that... You know they they paid a small amount of money. They bought some yeast, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm going to get feedback on how it worked. Uh, the commercial brewers too, uh, so that's really valuable for me. And then for, for them, it's like they get to try something new. That really, I mean, the only time we release something like that is when I feel it's a strain or a blend that it's it's not currently on the market. It's not something you know that's it's some it's it's a strain that's going to produce flavors and aromas that they can't really get readily available from anything else that, that's commercially
1: around. Right. And what do you, what do you think is something that you've you've captured recently that you're excited about?
4: I think the TYB 207 was one of the ones that I was most excited about. It's it's got it's a unique character that I've never really tasted in Brett. Like I said it has that kind of sweet tart character. It's um it's kind of like really tropical fruity, mm-hmm. but it's also very tart. It imparts a really great character in the beer and it's really great for uh, primary fermentation.
1: So this sounds like the kind of thing to make a, a New England IPA with a lot of galaxy and mosaic and then and, and pitch it with this so I get extra fruity characters and can say it's also sour and sell it for extra money. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose you could do that.
4: <laughs> but uh, our, our TYB261 uh, is a Britannomycistron I've been playing around with uh, quite a bit, too. That's one that's not banked currently at White Labs, but uh, that's very tropical fruit forward. Uh, and that's one that we're really excited about. We haven't made it a product yet. I anticipate it'll probably be a product in
1: the in the near future. So, but again, to the point of if somebody wants to get involved with the beta program, or at least you know have a shot at one of these strains, they really should be like you know going up to the newsletter, you know, paying attention to all the stuff you're putting out there on social media, and being prepared to go in there uh, on the day of launch with a credit card. for Yeah, definitely. You know, well, we,
4: no. we we try to make enough available where it's not it's not a huge rush. Um, and brewers that are interested in it and want it it's it's going to be available for them and and we kind of we gauge that through um, kind of the the releases that we put out uh, ahead of time mm-hmm. through our newsletter and and the interest that we get from commercial brewers and home brewers and we kind of get an idea of how much yeast do we want to make mm-hmm. well, uh, uh, for for these beta releases well, and but- typically i 'll roll it out a little bit more slowly uh, at the the t y b two six one I rolled out slowly, and I probably should have rolled out a little bit faster because there's a lot of demand for it. Um, and I was a couple of weeks behind, kind of dragging ass on it.
1: <laughs> well, now let me ask you do you, so, you know, you're kind of in the Levi genes of the brewing world area, right? You know, like everybody always here in California where we're sitting right now, they love to teach you that history lesson of like, oh, you know, the people who made money from the gold rush were the people who were giving the supplies. <laughs> yeah. And I can't imagine that's necessarily the case for you because, I mean, that's still, you're a relatively small company and, you know, beer is its own thing. and the beer margins are already pitiful as they are. And yeast is only a small part of that. But do you ever get that moment as a supplier of where you see one of these beers that you that is using one of your microbes? And you get to have that like, I'm the proud papa of this thing.
4: That's the yeah, there have been a lot of those. I mean a lot of a number of home brewers have sent me beers, but a lot of commercial brewers uh, have sent me a lot of really fantastic beers they've made with our yeast. And I, I get emails all the time. I actually got a couple today that were like, hey, we we made something with your TYB House Sour Blend, and we made something with your uh, TYB 261, both betas, that they were like, these are fantastic. We want to send you some bottles and and, uh, and uh, like, oh try geez. them out. I, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Here's my address.
1: <laughs> Twist my arm. Yeah. Don't worry about me. <laughs> I'll just drink the beer.
4: Uh, one of the guys that actually has done uh, a lot with our beta yeast is uh, uh well two of them really uh, odd thirteen mm-hmm. uh, out in oh, Colorado, yeah, uh, yeah dude, Brandon he's doing awesome. Shit. He pretty much every time we have a beta release he's just like he wants to get his hands on it. You could tell he's just he's a, he's an innovative kind of guy. He's always excited to play. He's excited to play big time. He um, does a lot of really nice stuff with our currently available uh, uh, catalog products, things like Wallonian Farmhouse. Mm-hmm. But then which he'll he'll do things like, you know, kind of perturb the beer by adding some some of our new Brett strands. I uh, really likes doing that. And then uh, over at Brewery West uh, down in San mm-hmm. Pedro, uh, they do a lot of stuff with our, our beta strands as well. And actually, I got a beer that was 100% fermented with our TYB 184 strand, which is now uh, uh, a catalog item that's propagated at White Labs. Uh, so you know readily available homebrew and uh commercial products uh that beer was fantastic it had a really great character he really he matched the character of the yeast with the hops mm-hmm. perfectly i told him you know th- this is what the yeast is going to impart and he really paired it well with uh, uh with the hops and the malt profile it was, it was perfect
1: yeah i would i would say brian is uh, from barley west yep. is a a very careful and very thoughtful brewer like absolutely yeah, he's not like you get some brewers out there who are just kind of willy nilly, but he's he's very thoughtful about what it is that he's putting into the beer. Yeah,
4: yeah. no, he doesn't just throw shit at the wall and sees what sticks. I mean, he, he 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 you know he puts his finger to the wind. He 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 tests out ingredients very carefully before he puts them together and and marries them. And it's it's you could tell it's a every beer he makes is a lot of thought goes into it.
1: Well, and for listeners who don't know, at some point, I hope to have Brian actually on the podcast. I've been trying. Our schedules keep slipping by. But Brian is really the person I would say is responsible largely for the influx suddenly of actual proper Belgian candy syrup into the country. Yeah. (laughs) like, Like he's focused enough on getting the right ingredients that he caused this whole thing to appear where now suddenly we have the appropriate greens to do all your quads and everything else. And it's fantastic. So when I say that about Brian being a very careful and conscientious brewer, I I know some people are gonna be bound to take that from me as being an insult, like hey, you're being stodge. But no, I mean in this case, I mean he really is doing the right thing in a lot of ways. So um all right, so now looking forward, we've got the beta program. Do we have anything, is there anything you want to hint at that's coming out on the horizon?
4: You know, we have some beta strains that are uh, in development right now. We have uh, Saccharomyces strain that actually someone turned me on to uh, about three or four weeks back. They sent me a beer and they said, hey, you know, I, I know this has a really unique house yeast in it. It's it's one of the better house yeast that I've used. Uh, they culture it out of the bottle and they say, mm-hmm. you know, I want something more consistent. So... How about how consistent? about I send you this beer and and you culture it for me and send it back to me and i said okay i'm 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 interested you you pique my interest and um you know, I isolated it, got a number of isolates, put them through their paces, and found one that was really good. I'm actually sending that out to a number of commercial brewers uh well, I sent one out today, sending one out tomorrow and then sending some uh back to the guy that sent me the beer uh so we can kind of play around with it a little bit so that's I think it's gonna be a good strain. It's on par with our Vermont ale mm-hmm except instead of all of the really intense stone fruit kind of apricot and peach esters it's more um, kind of it has a little bit of that but it's more like mango pineapple, uh, kind of a, a more balanced fruit profile with a little bit more tropical fruit involved.
1: absolutely perfect for those uh, those newfangled IPAs now,
4: I know Denny likes those, right? Oh, those real, those loves, real hazy ones, right?
1: Yeah, those ones are super the, juicy. The murkier, the better. Yeah, <laughs> we love you, Denny. Um, well, so let me ask you. So you just touched upon the idea that you you took this house strain and you found a bunch of different different isolates. For the uh, the listeners out there, or even the people who are speaking to you right now, who are not microbiologists can you can you walk me through a little bit more about how that process works and like what you're really looking for and like how is it that you know like these little colonies that you see these are different things that you can choose from and then play with
4: right it's it's always hard to tell just by just by looking at them so basically the first thing we do is we'll take a source and we'll streak it out on something like a petri dish solid media mm-hmm. what that allows us to do so in liquid culture all the cells are kind of mixed up together you can't really pull one cell out or another cell when you streak them out on solid media what you get is a bunch of different colonies forming, and the idea is that each of these colonies arises from a single cell. So each of those colonies is really a pure culture f- derived from one single cell. So we'll select a bunch of those off of our primary streak plates, and those are essentially like our master plates. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll take those. We'll select colonies. We'll streak those onto their own plates. Those are our masters for each of those colonies, mm-hmm. and we'll grow those up in small scale and run some test fermentations on them. And typically, what I'm looking for is, what's the attenuation like? Is it does it flocculate too much? Does it flocculate not at all? Um, what's the alcohol tolerance? Things like that. Um, and typically, a lot of this, a lot of the colonies get weeded out pretty quickly, mm-hmm. where either they're deficient, they don't attenuate well, they have some kind of weird off flavor. Uh, and that's, you know, that's not to say they're not a different strain. They're all likely the same strain. Well,
1: it's whether or not they're viable or... Right.
4: It's how viable they are, uh, their, their vitality, whether they've mutated in some kind of way that activates some genes that produce some off flavors that well, are you, not desirable.
1: Because you do have a, ten, a tendency to sort of genetically drift fairly quickly. They they can
4: drift. I mean, you know, they like most organisms. They have genetic proofreading, but it's you know it's not 100. percent When you put them in a high stress environment, where it's they have oxidative stresses, they have stress from alcohol. It's uh, uh, they're likely more prone to mutate.
1: It, it, it's almost like we're purposely throwing our our friends into a toxic soup. Fingers
4: oh. fingers crossed.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, and so and just to spell it out like when, when we're talking about on petri dishes, I mean, you're literally taking a. A microscopic sample of your yeast in a loop, and then running it across a whole plate in a certain pattern to kind of increasingly isolate right. it down so smaller, smaller, and smaller amounts of single cells. Right. And the idea so is that what you really want is yep. you want to get that single cell to grow up a little bit, and that's how you know that's a thing.
4: Yep. And typically, that's what we'll do. It's we'll take a a, a liquid source either. So there are a number of ways we can do this. If it's, it depends on whether it's a pure. We suspect it's mostly a pure culture. Whether it's a mixed culture, uh, are we trying to enrich for Saccharomyces? Are we trying to enrich for Britannomyces? Uh So we'll do a number of different, we'll use a number of different techniques to to grow them up initially, mm-hmm. and streak them out, and um, and isolate and characterize them depending on what we're
1: looking for. And um, yeah, well, now let's get into the other part of the the whole thing because I mean, earlier today, as we were saying over beers, we were talking about. You know how when when you start getting involved in beer science, you know, like you start to realize like how many people have opinions about what beer science means and and different things, and (laughs) and obviously when you start to get into the world of microbiology and speciation and you know, like you know, trying to make sure this thing is that that you're saying it is, people have opinions and people have opinions about how well you're doing it. And obviously, we've seen some of the stuff with White Labs. Yep. You know, where uh, what the Brett Dre became, or uh, uh, Brett Twa became. It's referred sac- to as Twa Gate. Yeah, uh, Twa Gate, <laughs> where Brett Twa became Saccharomyces Twa. And, and then obviously, recently, there's even kind of some more of that calling out there. Uh, what do you do about that sort of thing? Like, how, how do you do the speciation? How do, you, how do you make sure that if you're saying that something's a Brett, it's a Brett and not a Sac, or, or uh, how do you just go deal with it? Yeah, right now we work
4: with um, a guy at Penn State who uh, he helps us sequence all our isolates really to, to the industry best practice right now. We're not doing whole genome sequencing. <laughs> We're essentially doing 16S sequencing, which is basically looking at an area of the genome that tends to vary uh, a little bit more between mm-hmm. different species. And that's how they essentially have traditionally identified uh, what is or is not a similar, different species. So there's like a Saxie versus a,
1: a Brett or right. a Brett B, or right?
4: And but now we have the advent of whole genome sequencing, where essentially you you don't just have to look at a tiny little pinhole of genetic material. You can actually look at the entire genome and say, Hey, these organisms have you know, they share 95% of the same genes and maybe, you know, and it's not even just the genes they share. It's how, you know, how are they potentially expressed? What are the promoters in front of those genes? Is it something really active? Is it something that's not very active? So you really have two cases now where essentially before with traditional sequencing, you have two organisms that initially look different, Mm -hmm. but when you sequence their whole genome, they may be more similar than we thought. And then vice versa, you have two that look very similar and then you actually look at the whole genome and they're a
1: uh, little bit different than we uh, initially thought. So now have you ever run into a case where you thought you had like a Brett, and it turned out to be a sack or a sack that turned out to be a bret or something like that? Or I, I haven't
4: yet. I mean, like I said, we sequence anything that we put out mm-hmm. as a product to homebrewers or craft brewers. We always sequence, verify it. And it's to try to avoid making assumptions. And it's like, hey, I got this from a lambic, so it's probably Brettanomyces brexellensis. Well, it probably is ninety nine percent positive it 's probably that, but uh, we pref- I prefer to have a sequence in hand that that tells me that before I sell it, so I can confidently say this is this this is what a an actual experiment told me it 's not just my supposition of what it might be based
1: on some conjecture of of what is typically in those. Papers. Yeah, this is this isn't what I think it should be because this is what I think it should be. This is what I think it is because now nah, I got the yardstick on it. This is what I know it is. Right. So now, according uh, to best technologies, perhaps not uh,
4: best technology, but you know, good industry practice, standard sequencing technique
1: for uh, for certain values of best practices, where best practices are what are currently defined, we are practicing best practices.
4: I think a lot of yeast companies do. I know I've talked to a lot of other guys that own. You know smaller yeast labs, and I know they typically sequence verify. And we've all been really lucky. Like I told you before, when I when I first launched the East Bay, uh, I didn't have a lot of those connections, mm-hmm. so I was doing all my sequencing through Accugenics, which mm-hmm. is a company out east, uh, and that ran me uh, a few thousand dollars. Which at the time, I mean, that was that was a fortune to me, and that was a, a lot of the money that I put into the company in the front end. And I wanted to be one hundred percent positive that what I said I was selling. Was what I was selling, and I was willing to spend the money. And a lot of us now, though, are are lucky enough that we know, you know, a lot of research guys. I work as a genetic engineer now. I, I was previously working in particles uh, when I launched the space, so I didn't really have access to that technology. But now I work with a lot of guys that sequence stuff. I still stick with a, a buddy of mine out in Penn State that mm-hmm. helped me do a lot of my stuff. But I know a lot of these small yeast companies. They 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 find people and they find resources to to help them out. Oh. Uh, at a more f- affordable rate than uh, $100 a sample.
1: <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, one, of the, one of the things that's out there that's nice is that, I mean, beer people are beer people no matter what their education is. And it turns out that there are some very highly educated beer people out there. Who are a lot of molecular very,
4: biologists are beer people. So it's,
1: <laughs> they, I, they like to be of help. I was going to say, I, I would love to see a study that showed, like, incidents of beer people amongst IT people, which is, of course, those are my people. Uh, versus beer people amongst microbiologists, because I'd have to guess the micros win it on just a per capita rate, because it's so close to the home, as opposed to IT people who are just like maybe. I mean, I need that, a beer. that's the reason
4: I started homebrewing was because it was uh, actually I started um, my last my last semester in undergrad I took an advanced microbiology course, and my professor did a, a quote unquote fermentation sciences unit. He was a home brewer, and it was like kind of just a way for him to to. Brew free beer during class. And, you know, he was super excited about it. And I was like, oh, I can do, you know, kind of microbiology stuff while I'm not at work. I was like, that's cool. And that's, I mean, that was the whole reason I picked up.
1: Dude, never discount the power of the, uh, of the boondoggle. <laughs> the boondoggle is a powerful mechanism. All right. Well, hey, uh, Nick, it, it's, a, it's a little chilly out here. Our pints are almost gone. Uh, we've had a, a good evening so far. Uh, just real quick before we leave, as our first repeat guest on the podcast,
4: Nice. Wow. Really?
1: Yeah, you're the first repeat, uh, first repeat guest. Uh, is there anything that you want people out there to know that they should pay attention to? Uh, things to look forward to from the yeast bay?
4: Uh, no, just I, I guess really just keep a, keep an eye on our beta program. We're going to keep chugging that out. That's what we're really putting a focus on in, in 2017 and, and going forward, is just trying to get as much unique yeast out to uh, uh and craft brewers as possible. Uh, they can check out our website if they're interested at www.theyeastbay.com. That's the theyeastbay, T-H-E-Y-E-S-T ycom uh, And they can follow us on Facebook. We're uh, The Yeast Bay. And, uh, yeah, they can always feel free to reach out to me directly if they have any questions. I'd give them my email address, but uh, my name's a little complicated, so you can just email support at yeastbay.com if you have any questions about our products. And uh, I, I, I answer every email personally. I... I love interacting with homebrewers and craft brewers, and I always look forward to uh, getting good questions.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, and I do have to ask, are you going to complicate my Saison project anymore by offering more Saison strains? Uh, I will. <laughs> I'm going to send you a whole time when we get back. You paid for the burgers tonight. I, <laughs> I owe you. Bur- uh, burgers to yeast. <laughs> yes. Yeast to burgers. <laughs> all right. Fair well, trade. Hey, Nick, thank you so much for taking the yeah. time to talking. Cheers, all to right. Yay! Well, hey. So uh, all I can say is, man, if you're going to travel and you end up in di- different weird places— there really is nothing better than to go be able to meet up with good beer fans in any place in town. And Nick is always fun to hang out with because he really has some great thoughts about yeast. and has some really great thoughts about mixed culture type fermentations. And yeah, I mean, he's really just he's a, a lovely guide to his local beer scene and a big cheerleader of the whole idea. So I I just really appreciate having the chance to hang out with him. And I hope you guys appreciate the chance to hang out with him and, and hear his words.
0: Yeah, and if if you're looking for some uh, different strains of yeast than you're going to find normally, you definitely want to check out Yeast Bay. Nick has made a real effort to have a great collection of yeasts that you won't find anywhere else, and uh, there's some really cool stuff there. So we'll have a link to him on the website also.
1: I like how he emphasizes having unique things, things that are yep. different, as opposed to, oh, well, you know, here's my same Saison strain. You know that everybody else has right i like the fact that he's he's really bringing some new game to the market
0: yep okay it's time for the final segment of the show so we're going to take a quick break to uh, gather our wits <laughs> and we'll be right back We're back, and we are ready to do the final segment and wrap this baby up. So to get started, we're going to do some Q&A. We have a bunch of stuff in the mailbag today, or inbox, as it were. The first question comes from Leonard Ashcroft, who says, I've tried tasting my word on brew days because it just seems like a homebrewer thing to do, but I'm pretty terrible at trying to extrapolate what I'm tasting from my OG sample to what my finished beer will be. What do you guys think of maybe setting aside a sample of the grains from each batch and doing this Congress mash thing side-by-side with the finished product? What I'd like to have would be a personal library of this malt tastes like that and is good in these types of beers. I love the increasing sexiness of malts, by the way. Crisp Maris Otter will always have a special place in my heart, but seeing things like lofrin and Mecca Grade, which I can't wait to try, Warms the cockles of my heart. Well, Leonard, first of all, I just want to say I'm so happy you have warm cockles because cold cockles are just no good at all. But to to get slightly serious here, I think you've got a great, great idea. And to tell you the truth, a a guy in my homebrew club did something similar recently. We all know that by the time you get done boiling your wort and uh, adding hops to it and stuff like that, It tastes pretty vile oftentimes. So doing a Congress mash, and a little aside here, a Congress mash is where you just grind the crap out of the grains, pretty much making a flour out of them and doing a mash. So doing that and taking notes about what the flavors in the malt are when you you do that mash and then what the flavors in the finished beer are is really a brilliant way to help you when you're designing recipes figure out what malts you want to use. So uh, go for it, buddy, make a chart and then send it to us and we'll post it on the website.
1: Yeah. And I know that uh, this question was inspired by the recent video that we put up that we talked about earlier uh, doing the little sort of fake Congress mash at home to do the testing. And, you know, I, I agree with Denny. I think this is a a perfectly fine and valid idea. I don't even think that it will take that much of doing this as a dedicated thing before you really start to figure out, oh, okay, this is how that flavor translates. I think the biggest problem with tasting anything at the end of an actual beer boil is the fact that the hops actually stand out of more than anything else and cover right. it, cover everything else up. But I will tell you, I, I want to do this home evaluation technique with the, you know say, like a, a malt that I know very well, like Maris Otter, because I think that will allow me to build up some more of those uh, – uh, taste buds to brain connection type thing. <laughs> uh, but right I, I, I will tell you, if you guys haven't watched the video, we talked about it earlier in the episode, go watch it because this was actually sort of a fun thing to do. And I really highly encourage people to try it.
0: Yeah, and uh, if you guys go out there and test various malts and come up with your conclusions, please send them to us. And we'll try and put together like a chart of everybody's impressions so that uh, everybody can look on there and see what a particular malt from a particular maltster tastes like and how it translates into the finished beer. Okay, man, your turn. Oh, my
1: turn. I get to go now? All right. right. You get to go. All right. This comes from uh, Andrew Browers via email, and it's regarding fermentus be one thirty four. Says, "Hey Drew, I'm a fan of the podcast and the experimental brewing book. Yay! But I'm writing today, unrelated to the two. What? Uh, hopefully, you don't mind. No, we don't. I've been giving a, I've been given a pretty neat home brewing opportunity. Long story short, I get to brew nearly any recipe I'd like at a local brewery. The brewery sort of encouraged me to stick with dry yeast if possible." Browsing for their preferred vendor, I noticed a new BE-134 strain listed. Uh, I was curious if you'd heard anything about this guy. I haven't been a fan of dry Saison strains in the past, but thought this one sounded more up the DuPont alley. I can't find a lot on this strain, so trying to explore it a bit before committing to try it on a brewery-sized batch. I'm considering doing a uniquely hopped table Saison, but bonus points for your favorite slightly unique but not crazy Saison additive. Thanks, Andrew. First, Andrew, great name. Um, so yeah, BE-134 is relatively new. I think it's still only being sold in like the big packages, the 500 gram sachets designed for professional breweries. I haven't seen it at the homebrew scale, so I haven't actually had a chance to play with it. Now, trolling around and doing a lot of, uh, a lot of other research and finding people's reactions to it, it does seem like it's another sort of variant on DuPont. So you're absolutely right. I think it is right up the DuPont alley. And given that... uh, if I'm given the opportunity, I I would totally play with this stuff because, well, one, I have that Saison project. But two, I, 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 love, I love a lot of the dry strains that I've used in the past, but I've always been, just like you, sort of vaguely disappointed with the character of the dry Saison strains that are out there right now. So, no, I can't tell you what it's going to taste like. I really do want to play with it, though, and be able to answer that question for people, but I do think it's an interesting opportunity. I have heard rumblings that Fermentus is going to bring it out in 11-gram packs. Who knows? Maybe they actually haven't. I've just missed the announcement. Uh, Now, as for uh, slightly unique uh, but not completely crazy Saison additives, I find a really good one to use a lot is tea. Uh, Different uh, different sort of flavored teas. The infamous Clam Chowder Saison, for instance that I forced Denny to do. (laughs) That was only one half of the batch that we did. The other half I actually pulled out before we did anything with clams or anything weird. And I steeped that with, sorry, I pulled it out before we did anything weird with the clams and actually added a tincture that I made of a really powerful Earl gray tea and just did it in a low level. Add that to the keg at packaging to make it into an Earl gray saison to play with the creaminess that was coming from the potatoes and that was actually really, really spectacular. So tea is always interesting because there's so many different flavors and so many different ways to add it. And it gives a a flavor profile that works, I think, very well in harmony with a DuPont-style Saison Strain. So there you go.
0: And, you know, I got to say, uh, I'm not much of a tea fan, and I actually like the clam chowder half better, but... You know, uh, I'm sure that that's not going to go for everybody. And there are a lot of people using tea as a flavoring and, uh, you know, the half with the tea and it didn't suck either. So go for (laughs) it.
1: By the way, I want that carved on my gravestone. I preferred the clam chowder says on (laughs) half.
0: There you go. Right. Okay. Our next email comes from Steve Pavelcheck, who says, Denny and Drew, I recently built a fermentation chamber with temp controls. But how does one decide on what temp to use for fermentation? For example, uso 5 says an ideal range is 64 to 82 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a fairly large temp range, and even Denny's favorite 1450 shows 60 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. That was great when I just put my carboys in the basement to ferment, but now that I can control down to the degree, what should I do? Are there pros or cons to using lower temp versus higher temp? thanks steve Pavelchek atlanta georgia well steve um basically the deal is that in general the rule of thumb is, is that enough of, uh, vagueness the in general the rule of thumb is that the lower the temperature you ferment at the fewer esters you will produce uh I almost always ferment all of my beers at or even below the low end of the temperature range. For instance, with 1450, I can't remember the last time I didn't start that at 63 degrees. Um, I leave it there four or five days, kick it up to 70, 72 for a couple days to make sure it's finished and then crash it down to 33. Um, I think that that's going to be generally true of most yeasts. U.S. 05 may be a special case. Uh I get a lot of peachiness out of 05, and, which is why I don't use it very much. And I ferment it at a lower temp, like, say, 63 again. There are reports that by fermenting at high, 68, 70 degree range, you don't get the peachiness. When I try that, I still did. Maybe I'm just extraordinarily sensitive to it. So I would say there's two things to consider here lower temperatures, and your experience and preference. That's three things, isn't it? What do you think, man?
1: I, I agree. I mean, I'm, I am almost always a fan of starting low and letting things come up uh, to do finish out, and mostly because I think I kind of prefer it when my flavors work a little bit more subtly. I think every time that you end up near the top end of the range, and particularly from the start you tend to you tend to push a lot more character out of something so i like to start low and and let it come up and i think that's how i've gotten the best sort of most consistent and most professional results
0: i think i mean i guess as a general rule of thumb steve i would say Start at the low end, and uh, after four or five days, uh, let the temperature start rising or set it higher and see what that does for you. And uh, it'll vary from strain to strain, and that's where your taste buds and preferences come into play. And experience. And experience, indeed. Okay, man, you get the last one here. All right. So the
1: last one comes from uh, Charlotte Freeston via email, and Charlotte writes in, I believe, from the U.K., saying, Hi, Drew and Denny. I like that order better. <laughs> I was hoping you could help me out. as As my first attempt at adding fruit into my beer, I thought I'd have a go at your blue beer in experimental home brewing. Right on time for British summer. Fingers crossed. Yeah, it is kind of a, always a dicey proposition if Britain will have a summer. Uh, my translation, I've basically just converted it into grams of your recipe, is coming in at more like 6.8 ABV and OG of 1063, rather than the 3.2, 1036 uh, in your recipe. Does the blueberry addition, two kilograms, reduce the ABV because of the water content of the fruit? Seems like a big difference. Hoping you can help. Thanks, Charlotte. Well, Charlotte, this is what we call in the industry a fuck up.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the professional writer's term for it.
1: Yep. Uh, you have discovered the dirty little secret, which is somewhere along the way... The transcription got messed up, and what I'm guessing happened was the 1063, which you are noticing as your final calculation, was actually the correct gravity, and I flip-flopped it with my dyslexia to 1036, high, uh, and that then did the ABV calculation on that separately, which is why it reads 3.2 as opposed to 6.8. So no, congratulations, you are not wrong. I was.
0: <laughs> so we can't even, like, blame this on somebody else, huh? Because you did it.
1: No, this, this is totally me. Yeah, mia Cooper, Mia Cooper, Mia Maxima Cooper.
0: So, Charlotte, there you go. If you want to brew that beer, it's going to be a 1063 beer, uh, you know. Uh, just drink less of it. That's what I've been finding.
1: Okay. Yeah. And, oh, wait, wait. Before we leave. Yes? Breaking news. Because, Hey. Do you guys know that we have an Instagram feed up and running now? We're making posts to it every day. And just this morning, Denny posted a picture of the recording setup that we're using uh, for this on his side. And, well, it turns out, like, just literally in the last minute or so, we had a comment on the on Denny's photo from uh, Garrett uh, T M N, who says, Is tiny bubbles that cling to the inside of a glass a sighing of a dirty beer glassware? Uh, something I haven't figured out yet. And my answer to that, Garrett, is in my experience, yes, that seems to be very indicative of a dirty beer glass. What do you think?
0: Uh, I think it certainly can be. Basically, what's happening is that there are nucleation sites on the inside of that glass that allow those bubbles to form. So, uh, yeah, that could very well be. One of the things that I like to do to get my beer glasses super clean is a salt scrub uh, wet down the inside of the glass, sprinkle salt all around it. Scrub it really well with a paper towel or something like that. Rinse it out. And that glass will be clean. I guarantee you. So give it a try, man. It's cheap. It's easy. It's my kind of fix.
1: And follow us on Instagram at uh, Instagram.com slash experimental
0: brew. That's right. Our new feed. Okay, man. So that was, in fact, a kind of a little quick tip. And we have another one coming in, right? Oh,
1: yeah. Uh, so from Aaron Meade. Uh, from Facebook who said, uh, he was inspired by the brew in the bag episode that we just did, uh, on the brew files. He says, great episode. Uh, one thought I sparge in air quotes, my one gallon brew in a bag by bringing enough water to bring my pre-boil volume up to two gallons and to 170 degrees Fahrenheit. And then I just let the bag steep in that for 15 minutes. Then I drain again, add the first runnings to the second and bring it to a boil. I've even successfully party-guiled this way, making a Belgian table beer from a big Belgian dark strong. Cheers. Well, Aaron, thank you for that. So, I mean, it sounds like if I'm understanding this correctly, it's basically, yeah, you know, do two separate steepings and allow that second one to either exist on its own or become part of the main beer. So I think that's a rather really cool idea.
0: That's that's pretty much a party-guile right there, isn't it?
1: Well, yeah, and you think about it. I mean, in the old days when brewing was, you know, sort of a more ancient art, they would... They didn't have the sort of great ways of pulling, you know, wort out of the grain that they did. So they had sort of an inverse brew in the bag thing that they did anyway, where they would shove these big wicker cones down into the mash and then ladle the wort that uh, flooded into the wicker cone, uh, ladle that out and put that into a boil kettle. And so they were effectively doing the same thing anyway, because they would just add water and do that again. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Sure.
0: Go for it, man. Okay, well, it's time for everybody's favorite part of the program, something other than beer. Because, you know, when you've been drinking all that beer, you got to do something else. And uh, this week, my suggestion is yet another PBS show. I know I've recommended a lot of these in the past, but it's because they're so damn good. There's one running right now called Food Delicious Science. And basically what they're doing is uh, going around looking at how tasting works, how perception of flavors works. It's a botanist and a medical doctor. They're doing uh, various experiments to try and break down the components of of various foods. Uh, on the last episode, they, uh, they broke a pad Thai down into its component tastes and aromas. Uh, and it was very, very interesting. Uh, it's probably running on your local PBS channel right now, and you can go out there and stream it also, and uh, we'll put a link on the website to help you find it, but it is a really cool show. There is a lot of relevance to what we do in terms of brewing and tasting beer, and uh I'm just finding it completely fascinating. The guys doing the show are interesting guys, and the experiments that they're doing are absolutely fascinating. First episode, they even talked about DMS. Hmm,
1: There you go. Yeah. Well, And and if you notice, it seems that you recommend PBS shows, I recommend YouTube channels. Oh, boy.
0: Yeah, right. Well, hey, what can I say? Uh, I guess I'm more educationally oriented than you are, huh? Hmm. Hmm. Indeed. Okay, that's about it, huh? I think so. I think it's time to get the heck out of here. All righty. Well, we want to thank all of you for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com, and you can also support the podcast there don't forget to follow us on twitter where we're at exp brewing we're on facebook we are now on instagram uh, i'm on a whole bunch of different beer forums out there including the aha forum drew is on the reddit homebrewing forum and homebrew slack is that the name of it yep
1: uh, the
0: slack homebrewing channel there you go the slack homebrewing channel meaning that we're so many places I don't even know where we are. And uh, don't forget, we'll also be at uh, HomebrewCon uh, next week. So come by and see us if you're there. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at com. Or if you want to contact each one of us individually, I'm Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com, and he's Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally.
1: Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.